Hello and welcome to the very last episode of our Metal Gear Solid season. It's the season finale. It's the big ticket item. Because we're hearing from you. This is the listener Q&A special where just Blake and I and no guests of any kind are going to hear all your thoughts on Metal Gear Solid, many of which are really interesting. Have we ever had a guest on a Q&A? Was the tell? Yeah, Kat was on the uh, the Ninja Theory one. Oh, uh, okay. And I don't think we did any Qs or As. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's up, Jacob? We rarely... Here's the thing, Jacob. Increasingly, we rarely talk just boy to boy anymore. We usually have other boys playing Fortnite with us or guests. Yeah. It's never just us anymore. What's up? And, and up when to? we do, we are just fucking scheduling this show it's like we're just being like oh this should be the next season yeah it's like the shortest calls ever we're like this wednesday work yeah it works all right man i'll talk to you later <laughs> that's yeah. basically it so what's up what you been doing gosh uh not much you know it's it's february 5th you know like the day of recording this my birthday is in three days oh really february 8th wow i thought you were gonna say february 5th the day that Jacob Geller LLC paid for, paid me for last month. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> That's right. And I always do it three <laughs> days before my birthday. That's true. I have to wait a year to be paid for the show. It's it's a terrible system we got going. That's exciting. How old are you turning up? 18? Turning 29 years old. Wow. The same age as your hero, Blake Hester. I'm 29. <laughs> <laughs> my birthday's March 3rd. It's coming up. You know, as as you get older, I feel like, the the age of people that I'm friends with is what you know it's like when you're in school everyone is your age because it's right like, well they're in the same grade as you and that's how you know them and now it's like you know I'm I'm dating someone who's a different age than me and like they have friends who are older and younger than them she's, and it doesn't she's matter 52, as much listener she's 52 yep. She actually, she has that thing that uh, Fragile has from Death Stranding <laughs> where her face looks very young but she had time fall on the rest of her body <laughs> Do you have any like considerably older friends at this point in your your life? Mm. You can't bring up the person from the Henson ad because that was your dad's friend you tried to claim as your own. <laughs> hey, we text. We okay. sometimes we hang out. Um, no, I would say like forty is probably the cap. Um, Annie mm. has some friends who like she babysat their kids. Yeah, 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 you know, and but now like she and that mom are pretty tight, and she's uh, probably you know fifty something, but like I don't know her well enough to be like we're tight. Oh sure, I have like one very good friend that's in his like mid forties who was going to be on the pod but had to drop for understandable reasons. I don't know if he wants me to advertise who he is plus his age, but it is one of sometimes one of those like weird disconnects where it's like. I'm like still in my 20s and I text everyone, but to talk to him, we email constantly mm -hmm. or like hanging out because we don't live in the same city. It's like works around two ch children and a wife's schedule as opposed to like, I just got to be home to feed my dog. Yeah. It's very I strange. Mean, I, it's like coworkers are the real or, or like, you know, former coworkers yeah. or whatever. Like if I went to Minneapolis, which I'm trying to do at some point this year, I'd probably hang out with uh, both of our former coworkers, Jeff Cork. Um, oh, uh, sure. Previously okay. of Game Informer, who's the fucking coolest guy in the world and has like two kids and a family and, you know, all that. That's a good point. I didn't even think about like GI people because like Dan doesn't have kids, but he's like quite a bit older than me. 
you know, yeah. Dan Riker. So it's like that doesn't register. And Ben only recently had a kid. So it's like mm-hmm. there's only one friend where I'm like, oh, he's old. That's an old guy. Ancient. Crypt keeper. I also think Ben Hansen looks very young. That's like, true. He was, he was on <laughs> – there was a very entertaining Max thing they did recently where he was voted, like, funniest boy in his class. And he recently called – the girl in his high school class who was voted funniest girl and they just like had a conversation was it funny um, it was really she was very funny she's like not wow. a podcaster but wow. was like i was like i see it i get why um but but anyway it was like oh yeah he is i guess he's like the oldest millennial probably i guess so, actually yeah. he might be just middle because we're like we're like right at the bottom technically we could be you know gen z what do you consider yourself i consider myself a millennial because when i was growing up and i was reading people complaining about my generation they said millennials and so that is what i took my definition from but like my sister is four years younger than me and she's like firmly gen z wait so what are we deciding between gen x and millennial is what we are for gen z and millennial no we're we are we are almost with the younger people. Oh, okay. I but I definitely consider myself, I guess, a millennial because mm-hmm. I'm so not as like internet savvy as like a Gen Zer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, it's it's like I think the oldest millennial was born like eighty six, eighty seven, maybe. Oh, that makes sense. So it's yeah. like it's like the oldest ones are like in their forties. Yeah. Um. Oh wait, that I would also... actually be older. That would here's be like what 84. I, here's something I hate, and I'm curious your perspective as someone a little younger than me. Yeah. Like, people my age love to be like, I'm a 90s kid. And it's like, no, we're fucking not. I was like, right. Yeah, it's like I, I like, had consciousness for like six months of the 90s. Yeah, I was five when the 90s ended. I'm a 2000s kid, but I hate, like, people are like, oh, I, I missed the 90s. I was like, what, the two months you had fucking thought i i miss i miss shitting in diapers i miss when <laughs> someone fed me my food like it was a little airplane yeah well when you put it that way i do kind of miss just shit in my pants now i have to get up go to the toilet so obnoxious hey you got uh 50 more years you can be there again great can't wait uh you want to answer some fucking questions uh yeah but you've got a note first oh yeah so i was as i do once a month i was going through all our lovely emails and i noticed uh, there were many about the S, some, the SR, something wrong, codename SR, you know, our internal name for this project, SR, um, about the uh, the merch drop, which has uh, sold out. We have said we are not doing any more. Uh, we don't have many opportunities to kind of address the nation, as it were, the, the SR nation. But that's what we're doing right now. But that's what we're doing. So without saying anything too concrete... For anyone who has reached out about those in the last few months, I'm sorry. They're, uh, the 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 Silent Hill three shirt with Heather is not coming back. Uh, they are they are done. We're not doing any more reprints of them. However, I will say that does not, by any stretch of the imagination, mean that will be the only or last uh, something rotten merch. It can't be Jacob because I had to uh, sign up for a $15 a month uh, Big Cartel premium package for us. That's right. We got to make that to, worth it. Yeah. So so uh, stay tuned in the future. But unfortunately for anyone who missed the uh, some, the Silent Hill shirts, 
they're they're not coming back for you um that being said if you did buy them uh i i have loved the people tagging us yes. on social media with them it's really fun uh several comments being like i did not expect how good this shirt would be quality wise on saturday uh both annie and i wore ours uh separate from each other like we did not be like we're gonna be twinning today um but they're just nice shirts like they're it's actually a good you know addition to my wardrobe here's the thing i want to say and this is a slight call out of other podcasts if i may jacob but it comes from a place of love other podcasts especially ones that are bigger than us make more money don't go to these red bubbles or teesprings invest in your merch your listeners will really appreciate it i've bought other merch from other content creators that deteriorates after the first wash. Like, don't go to those. Yeah, I got I got a Doughboy shirt that is falling yeah, apart. Do not do that. It is worth the investment. And also, if you're smart, consider how much you invest in, in the shirts and reflect that in how much you charge for the shirts. It's worth it. I My heart has been full uh, hearing people be, like, really impressed with the quality of those things because we, uh, yeah. we work to go with people we trusted. So, come on, podcast. Pick it up. First question. First question. But is it rotten, though, from oh, yeah. Eric? <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of questions about when we announced MGS, whether or not they're rotten games. Yeah, uh, a similar question from Perry. Uh, something I'm missing from the pod as of late is the discussion regarding qualification of selected games as rotten. Sometimes, duh, X game is rotten, but hearing a discussion about the elements that make it rotten is always a good time. Why do the selected games belong in the rotten canon? On MinMax, Jacob said y'all are playing Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2. Ben Hansen seemed shocked, and Jacob said they're politically rotten. I'd love to hear that divulged on. I think, Jacob, there are like two different sides to the answer here. There's one, are the MGS games rotten? Two, mm-hmm. I'm sure we've talked about it a little, but I feel like over time, we've slowly expanded what games we're willing to cover. Right. You know, so that we didn't inevitably have to do like postal and hatred in season mm-hmm. five. So I think we have to address both both topics. Right. And I think I think that that Perry is right and that like this should be something that we talk about on the mainline sure. episodes. Like here's yeah. here is the rottenness of it. And sometimes I think I think we usually end up uh, talking about it you know but but maybe not defining like here's why it's rotten this is this is why this is for me uh do you how how rotten did you feel the metal gear solid games were because this is probably our biggest kind of step outside our established definition thus far i think mgs1 if i'm just like thinking about it in broad strokes maybe not the most rotten thing in the world mgs2's worldview like the way that game ends like and how like bleak it feels is rotten to me where it's like there's just this ai that is going to uh dictate you know it's like a thought control process and you are going to lose free will because there's this primordial ooze in the white house that has just like decided it's going to uh consume the brains of every human being over time (laughs) It, it does end it ends being like but you know do you like playing piano? Just live, brother. I was like, well, no. You've also painted this incredibly like nihilistic, terrifying view of the future of our planet um, in a yes. way that I find very rotten. And, and I think specifically the Metal Gear Solid 2 explanation, which we talked about so much on the episode, which is like, not only is there an evil AI, but the AI is evil because the United States as a construction is so 
fucked up that it like created a new life form whose purpose is to be evil like that is that is what it is and so it's like yeah that is such a kind of like cynical viewpoint in in this really beautiful poetic way that like that definitely qualifies i think you know actually uh, george super bunny hop on our first episode brought up the the rottenness of metal gear solid one which is just kind of like playing it every <laughs> you know that that was we who brought that up um him him kind of saying that like every soldier in that game is being treated as completely disposable you know all the people that are there are just there to die by this mysterious disease and snake is being sent in without any like expectation that he needs to know the things he's fighting for and all of this and so it is it's not necessarily rotten in the way that you know like Max, when Max Payne talks, you're like, this guy wants to kill himself all the time. (laughs) That makes him feel rotten. You don't really get that feeling from Snake, but it is like a a kind of cruel world feeling that I think does kind of permeate the the political consciousness of those games. We got a lot of emails that I don't think I included any. So just for the sake of bringing them up, we got a lot of emails about the more rotten MGS games. I think Ground Zeroes and Peace Walker came up quite a bit. And I think, not immediately, but I think a Ground Zeroes short season, maybe this December or something, like how we did a really short season last year, uh, maybe worth revisiting. Because I played that game and I remember it being rotten, it, at least the Vagina Bomb, very rotten. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> rotten in that it has, like, very specific cruel violence against women, which yeah. is, you know, a qualification of a rotten game. On the other hand, though, Vagina Bomb is my new feminist punk yep. band. Uh, our our friend AJ Moser has been telling us that three actually has maybe more overtly rotten themes, and I will say, I don't want to play the remake of three without having first played the original. So, like, I'm definitely gonna play it at some point. It feels like if we're both gonna play it, why not cover it? I think a three and three remake season would be cool. I think we've talked about this privately a few times. I think we've... that would be a fun. Uh concept we've talked about it the problem is that they've said they're we don't know enough about what the remake is to make this call it seems like they are going to be so faithful that it would be kind of uninteresting that every time we just be like well the graphics are better but i don't know does it make the game worse like we'd just be saying that Mm. for like three episodes yeah yeah um okay you ready this is a comment from brendan that might be one of the proudest moments of my life. I mean this unironically. I mean it with all sincerity. Uh, Brendan says, thanks for, the bu- thanks for the great show. You both have wonderful insight, and this is such a compelling concept for a podcast. Thank you, Brendan. Here's to many more seasons. Lastly, I am a new manager of an independent video store in Toronto, and Something Rotten has convinced me to give Kenji Fukasaku a section in our director's aisle. His films go too hard, smoke too tough, etc. for me to justify not having him there. Thanks for inspiring me to fill that hole. That's Let's so go. cool. Um, and for listeners, especially any Toronto listeners or travelers to Toronto, that's Bay Street Video in Toronto. So you can find them on Twitter at Bay Street Video. So Check shout out. That's out. so cool. That's so cool. I feel if if I'm an in, if that's the ways in which I'm an influencer, by God, I wear it proudly on my sleeve. All right. Uh, Devish or Devesh. 
uh, says, My favorite bit in Metal Gear Solid 2 is the reveal that the Patriots are not an AI, but rather the living manifestation of American ideology. Me too. Metal Gear Solid immediately, re- or Metal Gear Solid 4 immediately retcons this to make them AIs you can kill again, which makes sense in a literally how would we follow that up way, but is to me still disappointing. If you had to design a game where the villain is pure ideology and you were 100% free to do whatever you want in terms of scope or genre, what would you want to make? I think I would probably make a game I'm tentatively calling Res But Evil. Now, counterpoint, I would argue in Res, you are evil. Yeah. <laughs> Res, secretly a rotten game. We should play it. Um, I have no clue. This one stumped me. Do you have anything? Uh, I mean, I think... I think the villain of the game we're playing next season is kind of ideology. Um sure. but but in a way that is, you know, it, it is essentially like what horrors lurk in man's soul, uh, mm. versus like fascism is the controlling principle of the United States, which is like what MGS two is doing. Yeah. Um I gosh, it is it is so I mean, this is this is why like media that grapples with institutional forces is so often boiled down to like uh and there's one guy in control of it and you can shoot him because like if you don't have that what the fuck do you do yeah there are there are a number of games like indie games that have come out over the past couple years that are kind of centered around like unraveling conspiracies Mm. i i can't think of their names right now but it's like if you i'm sure you could kind of find them like they're including like connecting things with red string kind of yeah, thing, yeah, you know, yeah. like oh it's all whatever and so i think you could do this kind of commentary on uh, a government or something where you yeah. you have the theme of the game be corruption and it turns out that it's it's not just a few bad apples it is everyone that's kind of in on this this large scale conspiracy which would be interesting but it makes it makes the gameplay of the game kind of reading files, which is why Res But Evil is a great idea because it's like mm. you can still have kind of a game there, uh, and it's really hard to think of what the game would be if the villain is ideology. I think there there's fertile ground in the the genre of playing a computer virus. You know, Res is a prime example. Parts of Near Automata. Sure. I think I would make a game where you play a physical manifestation of a computer virus and you're bringing down some big bad govo that would be it kind kind of like an it's kind of like anonymous they're not virus people right they're just leakers they're just hackers well they might use viruses i don't know um this is something that's always freaked me out you know you know like viruses that you can get as a person isn't it bizarre that they are not living organisms that like you know, there there's kind of like if you like swallow, you know, mold or whatever, you can kind of get sick because there are like bad cells in there and they will get your cells sick. But viruses are like I, I like I don't know. I'm sure there's a, a, an actual biological answer that would totally make sense to me. But it's like they look like little creatures. They look <laughs> like little robots that you fight, but they're like not alive. And so it's like, what are they doing? Why are they going in here and making me sick? Yeah. You're having a really exist- you're having an existentialist breakdown about it. It's I I like mushrooms freak me out for similar reasons. That's fair. How are sperm not little live guys? <laughs> yeah, you just like a bunch of little blakes in there. How do they swim around? Like I don't understand. Like they are alive, but they're not living creatures. But they can die. 
Do you know what I'm saying? I I do. And, uh, you know, I guess we have no choice but to believe in God because we don't understand human anatomy. I believe in sperm, at least. Jacob, you know what I love watching on the internet? Blake, I'm going to politely remind you we are recording right now. Movies! Movies, cinema, all kinds of movies from all over the world. But for reasons not fully worth exploring here, streaming services like Netflix, Hulu, and the like have different libraries based on which countries they're being used in. Is that true? True as the day is long. That's why I use NordVPN to unlock my computer's location, allowing me to watch Netflix in America, Japan, Albania, the USSR, Constantinople. Oh, I don't know about the last two, but uh, that's really interesting. They added a time travel feature. So you're saying I can use NordVPN to watch all my favorite anime before they come to America? Sure can, but that's not all. Believe it or not, bad actors are doing their darndest to steal your information online. Wait, what? Yep, and you're helping them by not encrypting your data. Oh my god. Annie, lock our doors! I'll explain later! Yeah, don't get caught being a dummy and use NordVPN to protect yourself from malware, trackers, and ads. It'll also notify you if someone leaks your information online, and it helps you avoid those pesky CAPTCHAs and block lists. Okay, sure, but... Is Nord tracking or sharing what I'm doing online? Never. Your traffic is always protected with their robust encryption and their options to make sure your data is never exposed. Okay, well that sounds great, but how do I sign up? Well, Nord sponsored this episode, so we have a special link. Go to nordvpn.com rotten, and from there you can get Nord apps on all your favorite platforms, and one account can be used on up to six freaking devices. They also have 24-7 customer support and a 30-day money-back guarantee. If, for any reason, you don't like it. Okay, I'm signing up right now. Let me just type this in. NordVPN.com slash rotten. Probably the best thing you've ever done online, Jacob. Go to NordVPN.com slash rotten and sign up for NordVPN to watch all your favorite movies. And, importantly, protect yourself on the information super highway. What about the information normal highway? Does it have to be super? I'm looking for it. Um, okay, so this comes from Luke. Nowadays, I find MGS2 just as profound as I did when I was younger, but the more I replay it, the less I latch onto those elements people frequently dub as political or predictive. Instead, I find myself more enthralled with Raiden, with Emma, with the individualist motivations and messages of the game. As a survivor of childhood trauma, there's so much that resonates with... There's so much that resonates with me about MGS2 that I ignore in fav- that I ignored in favor of all the sci-fi junk like everyone else when I first played it. A few that come to mind are details like Emma stating her goal in working on Arsenal was to hurt Otacon, how Raiden waves wait how Raiden waits back into war operations despite war trauma that he clearly wants to to forget and so on. If we go a bit further with this, a similar thing happened to me with this game. Rather than reflect on myself as an individual, the way the game wanted me to, I rejected that and spent the years after holding it up as some sort of ideological symbol. It wasn't until much later when replaying it that I found more of a personal connection and broke free from all the messy violence and politics to instead find solace in its more uplifting message. So my question I ask is mainly, do you think MGS is political, or is it just a political backdrop for a game that is meant to mirror our own beliefs? Beyond that, do you feel that MGS2 makes a good commentary on how individuals struggle with childhood trauma? The personal is political, baby. Yeah, like that's, you, uh, you, you are know, your politics, and your politics are you. I, I think it is, it, it is, you know, hard hard to hold on to because so much of our politics happen on a national stage and are abstracted and whatever. But it's like politics are what affect you, you know. And like, like the I I love the most interesting thing about Otacon's character 
is like he he doesn't want to be creating war machines but he is and it's like that is the politics that every person who works in tech has to wrestle with you know like if if you are if you are making a spreadsheet tool at some point the u.s military is going to use that spreadsheet tool to like make missiles that kill people you know and it's like suddenly whatever you're doing in your personal life is going to interact with politics in a huge way um and so i think i think that luke you make a great point in kind of i think maturing in your understanding of politics is not just seeing them as kind of a web of high-level conspiracies but like understanding how decisions that people high up make affect you and your life and how they have affected them for generations and how potentially you know any trauma that you could have experienced as a child was not just because you had you know an unlucky childhood but because like structural conditions enabled like the situation that created that trauma or whatever i'm not i'm not saying that if we had a perfect welfare state no one would ever experience trauma but like you know typically when you're looking at a problem the end answer is not just people are awful <laughs> there is something structural going on it's it's really interesting i think as i've gotten older and uh the world has gotten worse and also i moved to the greatest dystopia on earth baby new york city the way you often will have to um fight your own personal politics with the realities of structures and systems does that make sense? Uh, yeah, but go on. I'm I'm dealing with a situation that I probably shouldn't divulge that runs up against my political beliefs, but I have to kind of, there are certain percentages of me that have to work against them because of the systems at play, which has become like an interesting, not an interesting, it's honestly very like a uh, soul sucking, like ethical dilemma where I'm having mm -hmm. to like rely on systems I don't believe in. And I've never really been confronted with situations like that where, like, my personal sense of being is, like, so reliant on systems I don't believe in. Right. That, like, has created a real moral quandary of self for me in a way where it's, like, my politics and my morals are, like, inseparable at this point. But also mm -hmm. I'm having to, like, fight with them. I I'm being intentionally vague. But, you know, it's, like, it is one of those weird things where it's, like, fuck... <laughs> The world sucks. Sometimes you have to go against your own belief systems because you have no other choice. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, it is like in those situations, it is really important to kind of be thinking like, what, what, why do I believe the things that I believe? Yeah. What is the way in which I wish this situation could be resolved you know like there there are things where it's like you're gonna you're gonna run into problems the the shit of like hey man i had my car stolen and i hate the cops but like what am i supposed to do you yeah. know like it, yeah. it's is is a real situation that people are going to run into and so it's uh yeah i i think um anyway in in you know, returning to this question, Metal Gear Solid is absolutely political, um, and I do believe that it has a perspective as opposed to being just a mirror for your own beliefs. But I do think that the power of its political position is that it's not a textbook, you know, that it, it shows how its politics are affecting individual people, and that's what makes it compelling. Speaking of which, um, we 
uh, had our friend Julie Muncy on the show many months ago to talk about The Last of Us 2. Um, Julie has, I don't know if it's because of us or just randomly, been playing a string of rotten games where she played Metal Gear Solid 2 at about the same time as us, and she's now playing Max Payne 3 and has been tweeting her way through it, which I've really enjoyed seeing. Um, but I wrote to her um, when we were wrapping up Metal Gear Solid 2 to see if she had any kind of, like, takeaway thoughts that would fit well with uh with something rotten um and this is what she responded with uh she said gosh i have roughly a book's worth of thoughts but one thing that stuck out to me finishing it this time is the exchange between snake and raiden where raiden says of the patriots they taught me some good stuff too and snake just says knowingly kind of sad i know there's a real insight there into the way that you, when you're excavating your identity from structural or social or interpersonal violence, have to sift through all of the lessons it taught you, the experiences you had, and try to understand and disregard the bad while also acknowledging and finding ways to own and make sense of the good. It's an ugly insight, right? Like, it's so much easier to think that only bad comes from bad experiences, that there is nothing beautiful to try and excavate and clean up and take with you. The idea that there's both, because that's how experience works on a fundamental level, is way harder and in a way much crueler. Good shit, Julie. Turns out good writer. Yeah, that was a way better way to uh, say what I tried to say in like 10 minutes. Julie had it in like 100 <laughs> words. That was good. Uh, Damon asks... Listening to your Last of Us 2 episodes, it kind of reminded me of how, I guess, gore focused a lot of the AAA spaces now, and how gore and ultraviolence are now flagship features of games. I want to know if you guys think there's a place for a new Kane and Lynch 2 style game. I think with games like that one indie body cam, body cam game, and admittedly a bad reference point, ready or not, that with the right called, ideas, Jacob. <laughs> uh, that with the right ideas and team, there's something that could be made. Sorry for the long question. All my love. I hope you had a happy holiday and new year. Damon, it's not a long question. <laughs> um, we've certainly talked about this before, but it was years and years and years ago. So I thought it would be fun to talk about it again. I believe our idea back in the day was, which granted, I don't know if this would be outdated at this point, but like something that was filmed with vertical cell phone cam, like that look. How you see like oh. world star fight videos, uh -huh. you know what I'm saying? Like, um, I think like we had talked about that kind of idea. Maybe I, we we had. I'm trying to remember, but I still stand by this idea. Like the way that like Kane and Lynch on two on the surface has the worst camera in video game history. It's like how can we make that worse and be like you would mimic a cell phone cam filming vertically? Yeah. Well, a, a lot of the trailer for GTA Six. Yeah, yeah, came yeah, out yeah. Is like shot on phone cameras. I I don't know if there is room for Kane and Lynch three, mostly because Kane and Lynch two is so reviled, except by geniuses of the world. Well, yeah, it's like there wasn't really room for Kane and Lynch two. They just made it anyway. Yeah, I just like I think that's a one and done because I I can't remember where I, Rasmus Paulson, who was the creative director. Was like people hated us for Kane and Lynch one so much because of the Jeff Gersman thing that we're like fuck it we're damned if we do we're damned if we don't let's just make the kind of game we want to make so like IO's not going to do that again people love them there's no reason for them to make something that gnarly they're going to make a James Bond game also they don't own the Kane and Lynch property like I think that that was a perfect confluence of events that led a big scale developer to be like we're gonna create an anti-art game that i like at this yeah. point in the industry naughty dog 
or whoever is not going to make that. Maybe the indie space. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think that uh, Unrecord, the body cam game, yeah. I currently that looks pretty close. The question yeah. on everyone's mind is like, how copaganda is that game going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, but aesthetically, it's pretty fucking close to Caden yeah. Lynch 2's level of kind of off-puttingness. I think that uh, something that we've talked about on this show before is like the what being kind of a bigger budget game can lend to something that yes. there there is a level of rotten that can kind of only be achieved if you have enough money to like invest in shit where it's like uh, if if you are limited in terms of your world design or your fucking gore system or anything mm-hmm. you might not kind of reach the same level of like overwhelming rotten feeling i i i don't think we'll ever get another kane and lynch 2 in the triple a space which even though that game is aged pretty poorly like it still feels like a triple a game in a way that like unrecord at least based on what we've seen feels like a game made by one person that looks very impressive sure nonetheless um i think kane and lynch yeah. 2 is just one and done honestly and i, I think that's unfortunate but so it goes. Yeah, we'll see. But it's like we won't get another Caden Lynch two, but we'll we'll get other stuff. I mean, I don't think we're gonna get another The Last of Us two. Um, but like we'll get other stuff uh yeah. that will be interesting, even if they make The Last of Us three. I I don't think it'll be as nasty. Yeah. Um I this comes from Luca. I recently had a lot of fun with a great game by a well known Japanese game designer. It was about how nuclear weapons are bad, all women are the same, and all characters in it have dumb names. You must have figured out by now that I am obviously talking about Killer7. Yes! Mr. Hester. <laughs> Hester's constant mentioning of how good that game is made me want to check it out. And what do you know? It was very good. So thanks for that. My pleasure. Uh, I also watched a playthrough of MGS and delighted to play through MGS2 in the following weeks. So I haven't yet listened to the MGS2 episodes. That being said... I still have a question for you. If you guys were in a Kojima game, what would your silly Kojima character names be? Warm regards from Croatia and very much looking forward to future episodes. Okay, so let's talk about Kojima names because there's mm-hmm. like the Death Stranding style, which is present in Metal Gear Solid as well, but sure. that's the kind of like diehard man or uh, whatever. But there's also, there's like kind of the Liquid Ocelot style. And then there's, like, Sam Porter Bridges, which are all different styles of stupid names. I'm going to go the Death Stranding style, supporting cast. And my name would be uh, Blake Dumbass Boy, because I'm a boy who's a dumbass. <laughs> but he spelled a little differently. It'd be like Dumas, but it'd be like Blake Dumbass Boy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It would be me. I'm trying to think if, if Kojima would, like, I feel like it would be, like, uh, so... In Hebrew, uh, Jacob is Yaakov. That is like I, oh, my, course, my Hebrew name. So yeah, it would be like um, uh, Jacob Yaakov Beard. I feel like that would be <laughs> where it'd be like, here's his two things. He's Jewish and he has a beard. The other night, uh, I was staying with my partner and we woke up the next morning and she was like, were you speaking really good Hebrew last night? And I was like, no, darling. <laughs> <laughs> you were dreaming I could speak Hebrew. But she was like, you were saying all those Hebrew words. I was like, no, I absolutely wasn't not doing Do you think? Do you think you were just snoring and you were kind of inadvertently going like Hanukkah? I, I, hey, that's not a joke I can make. It's not a joke I can participate in. Uh, no, but she snores like crazy. That's a call out. Sam, I know you're listening. We got we to gotta get you a CPAP machine <laughs> or something. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, All right. Go for it. Blake asked if Metal Gear Solid 2 is supposed to have an antagonistic relationship with the player. For my two cents, I think it is. This is an idea I've been thinking about writing about, but I have a couple other ideas as well as college classes that have taken priority first. I think that Metal Gear Solid 2 outright hates the player. The end of the game throws so many plot twists at the player that are so hard to follow that the player is mentally exhausted. The player is also physically exhausted by the end, having fought 20 Metal Gears and lived through a minute button mashing sequence in the original release on the hardest difficulty. Another reason I think Metal Gear Solid 2 hates the player is because of something I never noticed until Leadhead pointed out in her video the most interesting game ever made. The game is lying to the player at the end, making up quotes that Emma and the president supposedly said but never did. To me, Metal Gear Solid 2 falls into a very narrow genre of art that hates the person who consumes it. I was originally writing out my thoughts on other examples of the genre before realizing this wasn't the place for that. Instead, I will say the other biggest staple of the genre to me is Satoshi Kone's Perfect Blue from Ash. You ever seen Perfect Blue? Nope. Great movie. I got Paranoia Agent sitting right, right next to me right now. Kone, the greatest who ever did it. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I think MGS2 does hate the player um, in a way that I really admire. Um, I, I think the idea about the plot twists are meant to exhaust you mentally is really interesting i don't know if i believe it but i do agree maybe with the physical exhaustion of the mg the like metal gear fights yeah how do you feel about it i um first off i don't think art that hates the consumer is actually that rare there are certainly if you if you search video games that hate the player even on youtube you'll get a lot of results for that and i think uh, there are there are so many kind of Kane and Lynch too books and movies. Yeah, Kane and Lynch too. You know something something like Eraserhead or fucking like Finnegan's Wake or any of these famously kind of like hostile to consumption pieces of art uh, would fit the bill. I don't actually think that Metal Gear Solid Two does. I think that it is. I think that the mechanics of the game are too kind of fun and interesting for it it's like metal gear solid 2 has so many little interactions where it's like oh you can leave the porn magazine on the ground and the guard will look at the porn magazine or like oh you can shoot a radio out of the guard's hands while they're calling into the radio that are just like such fun game designy things that i don't think the game as a whole comes across that antagonistically because it's so clearly like having fun with itself and it wants you to have fun with it it wants you to you know shoot the ice bucket and watch the ice melt and do all that um but i do think that it is it wants the player to feel very challenged by it and and upset expectations and kind of leave them feeling somewhat dizzy so it's like i agree that it's definitely it's not trying to go down smooth, but I don't know if that's the same as um, hating the player. What do you, uh, you got any things you like that hate the viewer, reader, or watch, player? Um, I mean, my classic example, which I wrote about this years ago, is the uh, the video game Naissance, uh, which oh, is uh, that sure. kind of uh, hostile mm-hmm. architecture one, which is uh, very, you know, very, I think I haven't played it. I think people talk about Lisa the Painful this mm. way. Um What's that game that I patch Wolf? Hunger, likes? fear and hunger, fear and hunger. Is yeah, 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 another another example that feels similar. It's like there there are a lot of games that are I think just mechanically hostile enough that people talk about them as hating the player. I got a movie I always think about in regards to this, but I'm gonna save it for the answer to another question in a few minutes. Cool. 
Greetings from the UK. This comes from Rick. Cheerio. Hope the weather is not too rainy over there. Yes. Hope you're enjoying your uh, toast and beans. <laughs> After watching Jacob's work on YouTube for years, I've finally signed up to Nebula. I got a question about this next comment here. Expecting that Soma playthrough from Blake now. Did we say we were going to... Did I, did I say I was going to do that? I do not remember, but I assume you did. Rick or someone, please write to our email, somethingrottenpodcast at gmail.com and remind me what that is. Because Rick's, Rick's saying they signed up and I have to do it. So remind me why I have to do it. I'm working my way through the podcast and currently up to The Last of Us Part 2. I admit I've not played most of the games on your list. Darkness 2 crew represent, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested in hearing if the two of you have had any experiences with nightmares, restlessness, or bad sleep as a result of playing these games. I remember distinctly playing the demo for Carmageddon 2 in the late 90s. Carmageddon, was that Remedy's game before? No, I don't think so. I think that was Death Rally. Anyway. In the late 90s as a young teenager and how much it seemed to disturb my subconscious for a while by being related to something that was so important to me, cars, as well as a lifestyle choice in general, driving. Hmm. As I've got older, these things seem to affect me less. These days, Stalker and various mods is probably the most rotten game I play, but I was just looking to hear your thoughts about if any of these games have had a relatively substantial impact on your downtime after playing them, especially after you choose a game and completely mainline it to hit targets. Cheers, lads, and keep up the work. Good work. Thank you, Rick. Um, I the most the game has affected my sleep is Anatomy, where the wow. first time I played it, I like really had a hard time. I, I was like, I considered sleeping with the lights on. Wow. Uh, you know, like I was, I was freaked out by the concept of being in my bedroom, which is what that game is trying to do. Um, presently, I. I don't think it's happened with any rotten games that we've done. Yeah. Weirdly, I get I get more affected by mechanics in terms of sleep where it's like I remember there are certain games that I've like played for long enough and are kind of mechanically it's like they get your brain into such a specific way of thinking that then I can't shut that off. I think actually with with Marvel's Midnight Suns, the Firaxis game, I was like I played that for so long I would like shut my eyes and I would still be thinking about like pushing people into mm. other people. Yeah. And and it was like I was going to sleep and I'd still kind of be like groggily playing Midnight Suns in my yeah. brain. Um, I used to make to-do lists when I was playing Death Stranding for the first time and I was done playing. I would make to-do lists in my notes app of like what I wanted to do the next day and what deliveries I wanted to do and how I should route them. Um. Have I ever talked about how I wish I had more nightmares? <laughs> I don't think you have. This is like something I think about pretty frequently. Um, because I've watched so many fucking horror movies in my day. I just like have, I, I rarely get like very, very scared from media anymore. Anatomy mm -hmm. really fucked me up. But I don't live in a suburban home. I live in a very uh, densely populated part of New York City. So I was like, well, when I turn the game off, it's not going to affect me that much. Um but I really wish things would give me more nightmares. Not like like spooky, scary nightmares. Like, oh, the boogeyman's in my dreams or something like that. Because, like, I miss the sensation of being very scared. Because, like, even when I watch a horror movie and I'm like, damn, that shit rocks. It was real spooky. It, like, never affects me after the movie's over. You know? So I wish. Yeah. I wish some of these rotten games would affect me more. And I could have spooky dreams and wake up all scared. Because I kind of miss that feeling. Which is uh, um, why I probably need to go back to therapy. This is a uh, this is slightly off topic, but I read this book um, 
last year called breathe or breath which is this whole mm. it's kind of a kind of a self-help book but it's all about breathing and it's basically all about how like we fucked ourselves up by uh mouth breathing and not nose breathing and all these other things that like your breathing affects so many things blah 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 um there's this story about a woman who was born without or it's like she had a small or the part of her brain that made her feel fear where essentially she just never experienced oh, fear yeah, yeah, yeah. at all and and like you know would kind of like oh we're putting a spider on your hand and she like wouldn't react and like didn't didn't feel anything and and he wrote about there was this test where they had her um take take basically a big gulp of pure carbon dioxide which essentially makes your brain immediately feel like it's drowning because there's like no oxygen in it and he, and the in the test it was like she freaked the fuck out and would not do it again they were like Holy they were like hey shit. can we we want to like replicate those results and she's like i'm not fucking doing that again because wow. it was like it like activated a different part of the fear center or like it was yeah. like scared in a different part of her brain so she actually felt it as opposed to all the other times when she was supposed wow. to be scared and didn't and I, I think about that a lot it's like she was scared in a whole new way wow that's really that's really interesting what's that book called uh it's called breathe it's a it's a popular one i i, I feel like there's probably a healthy amount of pseudoscience in that book but it's still an interesting read you live in a big old house now Big, big youtube content house with uh... that's right i live with a bunch of other content people <laughs> you ever get scared in there any you ever you watch any movies recently the spooky out um i don't have to watch movies to feel scared i um i i mean it's like i have lived mostly in houses for the past uh, several years of my life and it's like um being being in a house alone with most of the lights out is scary just full stop you know, I, it's like, I don't need to watch a movie to feel scared, though. If I do, I will feel extra scared afterwards. Well, yeah. What was the last movie that really scared you, though? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. I can't. It's like I because it's like I've watched movies that I was tense during them. Right. But was not scared afterwards. I, I'm going to have to come back to you on that. I can't remember the last movie I watched that I was scared. I remember mine. It was. I think 2020. So it's been a few years. It was the we uh, talked about this. everybody's gone to the World's Fair. No, that movie scared me while I was watching it, but not after. Okay, that's the important distinction. It was we talked about this movie on the podcast before, The Last of Us bonus pod, the French film Inside. Mm-hmm. There is a scene where the a person just shows up in a window, and I was watching it at my parents late at night in their basement, um, and. They have, like, a very similar door and window set up, and behind their house is, like, nothing. So it was just pitch black down there. And I had to pause. This happens in the first 20 minutes of the fucking movie. I had to pause it and, like, take, like, a half an hour break. I got so fucking scared. And then after I turned the movie off, I had to walk past those fucking doors so many times. I was petrified, dude. Here is the scariest thing uh that is in my brain that I worry about every single night is I just look out a window and there's, like, someone there. Yeah, that's like that's it. That's the scariest idea. No longer a problem for me. I live on the sixth floor. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it would be even scarier if you did that's see someone. That's true. Actually. Uh Clancy writes, 
A recurring theme that I noticed throughout a number of Rotten games is being cinematic, or trying to be more like a movie. Canyon Lynch 2's camera being diegetic and trying to emulate Live Leak, the entirety of Manhunt being framed as a snuff film, The Last of Us being adapted into a miniseries to critical acclaim, and now Metal Gear Solid. With all the video game movie adaptations and the stereotypical Sony movie game being more prevalent than ever, it is interesting to look back on MGS1, where Kojima states that cinema was his biggest influence. However, this begs the question, why are games trying to be more like movies when they could be so much more? Mm -hmm. The ending of Metal Gear Solid 2 is a personal favorite example of a story that could only be told through the lens of a video game. Since comparing games to movies is a recurring talking point on the podcast, with Blake going as far to say the best video games are mid-movies, I wanted to ask what you guys think about cinematic games. What lessons should game developers take from film directors and cinema? I think the, uh, I think the issue with cinematic games is that it exposes that in some creators heads a like it exposes in the in the heads of some creators their greatest aspirations can only are that games can only be films and not something mm -hmm. different or more interesting i'm not going to say better because that's uh you know that's a winless conversation there but like i think last of us part 2 for example one of these big cinematic games earns its interactivity more than a game like last of us 1 which does really interesting things with the Ellie Joel dynamic. But, like, it made a lot more sense to me that Last of Us 1 could be an HBO show than Last of Us 2. Because I'm like, how do you make Abby work in a way that isn't interactive without making Abby a Last of Us 2, like, four seasons long, right? Yeah, and it also, it seems like the the focus that is put on kind of game development is, like, the graphics are so good, the motion capture is so good, the lighting is so good, all of these things that will essentially make it look more like a movie mm -hmm. and less so on, again, something that I think The Last of Us 2 did really well, like like AI or, yeah. you know, something that, um, not, not AI like fucking uh, chat GPT, but enemies walking around yeah. behaving realistically you know seeming seeming like they're really there this is what everyone says with next gen is like i wish the systems got more advanced rather than the things but i think because it's harder to show off systems and and also because i think people people do really just like those playable movies uh it, it, it we have kind of gone in the direction of like wow look at how much better the graphics are now right yeah and so i think like that's the issue with them is like their greatest aspirations are to only to be comparable to film rather than to be like pinnacles of their own medium. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Um, and it's why my favorite cinematic moments in games are often things that would be impossible to film practically in a movie, setting aside CG and everything. But like the the um, intro to Devil May Cry 5. The, where they're showing like the names of the developers while Nero is like flipping outside the bus and everything. It's like, that's not something you could actually go and film. And that's why I think it's like really interesting because it's like, oh, this only works in like a digital space. Oh, sure. But like they could like that's similar to something that they do in like Spider-Verse or whatever. Like you're just talking yeah, about yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. creative animation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I don't know, like there's no practical there's no practical filmmaking in games. So it's like, I understand you could do that with CG and everything. But like when God of War is like, oh, look, it looks like the camera guy's behind him and it's a single take. I'm like, I don't give a shit. But when it does something like really cool with its camera, like I am more compelled by it. Does that make sense? It does. I think it's, you know, I think that's basically just talking about compelling filmmaking, which I think honestly is a problem where it's like 
games want to be movies, but in kind of a boring way, where I, I always go back to, it's like, if you look at the way that the cutscenes in uh, Wolfenstein The New Order are directed, they are cinema, like, cin from a cinematography perspective, way more interesting than the stuff that most Sony AAA games are doing right now, because their prestige camera work is often just not very interesting, and I feel like is not is not like framing shots in the most interesting way. And so part of the problem with cinematic games is that they're not actually that good at like being movies. You know, they're not doing, it's like when we talk about like how good Spielberg is at like putting a camera somewhere and putting lights somewhere. Right. It's like, we're not getting that out of the prestige AAA games yet. It's just kind of that they think if they have really good looking characters and good lighting systems that, that the game will automatically right. be interesting, uh, from a cinema perspective not much thought put into like blocking and how the actual frame tells the story as much as the script and it's like i'm sure i'm sure there is you know i'm sure that that they are the people who are doing this are thinking about framing and whatever but it feels almost more like their house style is limiting them that they don't want to be too out they don't want the camera to ever draw attention to itself you, you know you know what game had beautiful cutscenes. Can, can a bridge of spirits because they were a film studio before they were a game studio. That game's not that great, but the cutscenes were incredible. Um, also, I'm ready to have this conversation. I don't think cutscenes at 60 frames a second look cinematic, no matter what you do. And now all these games, they have their performance mode. You want to play them, but then the cutscenes are 60 frames a second. They just fucking look garbage. Just knock the cutscenes down to 24 frames a second. You've solved half your fucking problem. You Wait, know. so, okay. Because I'm currently playing a game that is the, uh, there are pre-rendered cutscenes and like the pre-rendered cutscenes do run at a lower frame rate than the game. And it is noticeable. <laughs> okay. And that's good. That's good. Run them, run them at 24 frames a second. Like something like Spider-Man, I want to play in performance mode because shit's so fast. But then the cutscenes are in 60 frames a second. I'm like, this looks like a fucking soap opera. I, I don't know if it, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You can be wrong. I don't I don't care if you're wrong. Um I do think there is there is something that we kind of that doesn't often get talked about with this, which is I feel like there is when we're talking about cinematic games, we're talking about like cutscenes, and then it feels like the cutscenes are trying to be like movies, and what we really want to be talking about is is gameplay. But I think that like the cutscene, you know, I'm thinking about in um in the original Final Fantasy VII, Sephiroth kills Aerith. You know, big, big moment happens in a cutscene. There is nothing that you can do to affect that cutscene. But the reason that that moment hits is because Aerith is a party member that you, like, invested a bunch of gameplay time in. And, like, that is something that a movie can't do. It can't make you, like, actually put resources into a character and then kill them. And so it's like, the game's big moments can still be in cutscenes. I don't think that it has to be entirely in gameplay. But, like... It, you know, much like Metal Gear Solid 2. Metal Gear Solid 2 is a fucking ton of cutscenes, but, like, it's doing stuff interesting enough with its game that then those cutscenes kind of work in interaction with them. I do really think... We're, we're talking a lot about Sony first-party games right here. Mm -hmm. And I think something those games do that is really good cinematically is often how they will stage the introduction of a level. Like, we talked about Ellie getting out of the water in Seattle and seeing the aquarium 
like how yeah. it's framed like and you're playing that like they have set up that that's how you will enter that area another one i think about is in the god of war 2018 the like snowy area where the dead giant is collapsed and that's the beginning of the level. oh yeah that's start there and the head is down there like i think all that shit is really great and such a cool way to like bridge what you're playing with like how it looks cinematically um mm-hmm. but the cutscenes in a lot of these games don't do much for me yeah there was one fine. there was like one really cool like long shot in last of us part two that i thought was pretty neat um but nevertheless so it goes put your cutscenes in 24 frames a second put the fucking black bars on there just put just let them make another order 1886 man come on <laughs> let's like let, what are we fucking doing here anyway um hey guys this comes from julian Hey guys, I appreciate the podcast a ton. It's really interesting seeing unique perspectives on video games I grew up on. How can you see us, Julian? Maybe they, maybe someone is outside my sixth floor window. <laughs> as well as video games I recently gotten into. Question. Considering the meta and postmodernist themes throughout the Metal Gear franchise, what are y'all's personal favorite uses of this in other games, movies, etc.? I.e. a show, a book, or a movie that exhibits self-awareness, breaking the fourth wall, commentary on the ideals and expectations of the audience, and a compelling Wait. I bet we have the same first answer. I bet we don't. Not near automata. Nope. Okay. Well, near automata. Oh yeah. Uh, the Michael Haneke film. Funny games. Cliche answer, but I think what that does uh, to fuck with you as the viewer of the film is so interesting. Without spoiling it, there is a scene involving a uh, TV remote and the expectations of happy endings, and I think it is so cool uh, and. The more that film breaks and winks and nods at you, I think is really rad. But speak on near, speak on near, brother. I, it's it's honestly, I I've only played through Near Automata once, and so it's kind of you know I just remember the like big moments of like that final ending, like the choice that it asks you to make at the ending is kind of like, do you want to make a player logic decision or like a game logic decision, and and understanding those as like two separate things which is really cool um you know i think using the structure of just having a bunch of endings it's like that does not make sense if you're only viewing the story as through the perspective of the characters like it has to be understood as you a player playing through them as opposed to like what the characters are experiencing i think it's interesting i i am you know we we've said that we're going to cover that one day on this podcast and like even though it's a big game and i think it'll be kind of a slog um i'm interested in replaying remember it. in the final boss in Nier automata when it starts when it's flashing back and that forth is between the 9s and 2b world. and it goes faster and faster and faster and faster dude god that game is so good uh next one wait and uh, actually one more one more answer that i have to this um i'm sure you have not uh, seen this but blake you ever watch the tv series fleabag no uh fleabag a great tv show kind of almost feels less good in how much people have talked about how good it is but it really it really is the se- season two of fleabag is like maybe the best season of television you know like if if someone was like what's what's the best one um and she does what at the beginning I thought of as the office thing where she just like looks at the camera, you know, she does little asides that like the, the other characters in the scene can't see her addressing the camera, shooting us little glances, whatever. And in both season one and season two, they then 
use that perspective because it's not like there's a documentary crew. There's no kind of in-universe reason that she's looking at the camera. And you think that it's just, oh, it's just like a fun little storytelling device. And then in both the first and the second season, they do like two different things with it that completely recontextualize what that camera is and like what she's doing when she looks at it. Really? And it rocks. It is like when it happened in the first season, it was like, it was like I felt the earth moving under me. I was like, I can't believe this is this smart. And then the second season is arguably even better with like how it treats that camera. That's cool. Um, I know you haven't read this book, but for the sake of podcasting, Jacob, have you ever read The Flowers of Buffoonery by Osamu Dazai? No, I haven't. Pretty cool book. It's only like 90 pages long. Um, the The way this book is written is that it, it, it tells the story of a failed suicide and just his hospital stay and his like friends and family kind of hanging out with him. But the narrator of the book, who is also the star of the book, is constantly interrupting the story to second guess his writing style and like <laughs> try to get out ahead of the criticisms you will have of his prose as a writer. It's really fucking weird. I don't know if I really like it, but like you'll be reading it and like getting invested in what's going on with the characters. And then he'll like completely stop what he's doing to be like, God, that last paragraph is fucking terrible. What am I doing? Like I am, <laughs> these are just like, you know, like, shallow attempts at pity i'm trying to create in the reader like i should be actually like i don't know it's a really cool book you can read through it in a day um so yeah my other answer is the goat funny games jacob you gotta watch this shit watch the austrian watch it okay no you won't no you won't is the thing you're not gonna watch it but you love it it's so rotten it's like i need i need a night because it's like i'm sure it would not be uh it would not be to the tastes of my partner you know so it'd be like a a night where i would have to be alone watching a movie and that just requires me to be like what am i gonna do on my night alone ah, i'm gonna watch funny game well speaking of my real friends the listeners who do want to watch the movies i recommend them read this next question my question is about Blake's movies. Uh, I was wondering if you had or could update a document with the movies you suggest on the pod. I'm often listening when driving her out for a run, and I hear movies which sound amazing or interesting, but then I can never remember the names. I know this is a me problem. Uh, I could just go through and listen to them again to find the movies, but you've mentioned so many. Also, any other listeners in Wales, United Kingdom, from Mark? Um, Mark, this is not a, a you problem exclusively. We actually get a lot of comments about yeah, this. Yeah, a lot of people mention uh-huh. this. So we used to do this. So there are definitely, if you go to some of the other bonus podcasts, you can find like master lists of them, but we stopped doing it. So we're going to, we or me, whoever, we're going to come up with a solution to that where we can like update. Maybe it'll just be like a Google doc that's publicly available or something, but yeah, I'll, I'll figure it out. So yes, Mark, we'll do it. All right. You want to read, read this one? Yes. This comes from Seth. With regards to the comments about Lazy Eyes in the bonus episode, for anyone who's not a Nebula subscriber, uh, we talked about the holdovers where Paul Giamatti's character has a lazy eye that switches from his left to right eye seemingly at random and there's no explanation as to why. With regards to comments about Lazy Eyes in the bonus episode, I don't have exactly the same thing, but I don't have binocular vision. One of my eyes appears as lazy, but when I switch which eye I'm mainly looking through, the eye that looks lazy changes. It gets more obvious when I'm tired. This comes from Seth. So that is really interesting. There you go. Owen writes in, 
and says, I am the one Southern Caribbean listener. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. I was listening to an old episode of the show and heard you guys shouting out the international listeners. This has an asterisk because I didn't move back to the U.S., and, but in 2023, I was with my grandfather in Granada and Barbados. The islands are absolutely amazing, and I call it the anti-New York <laughs> because everything is green and everyone is nice. When cleaning oh, yeah. or cooking, I'd often listen to the podcast. I'm also a big Metal Gear Solid fan. I've been loving the recent episodes. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Owen. Absolutely. Owen sent pictures as well of uh, Granada and Barbados, and they looked incredible. So I'm about to be the one Southern Caribbean host of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this comes from Brett. Hey, y'all. Best explanation I could find for why Metal Gear's war like a dinosaur is the sonar system gets triggered above water if the Metal Gear is amphibious. I like this one a lot. If the heat, it's a heat exhaust, heat exhaust function because a system like that has got to generate a ton of heat. It needs to release. It might just make the kind of noise when it appears. Otacon, when making the Metal Gear for the first MGS, left it as a Godzilla Easter egg that stuck around in later versions that copied from it. This is all speculation, but it was fun to think about. Thank you for the great show. Thank you. The heat exhaust one is awesome because then that would also sense. mean that it would essentially have heat breath. That it's like, <laughs> yeah. and it would like. Yeah roast anything in front of it two more uh wiley says throughout the metal gear solid series is a bunch of mixing of themes regarding gender and sexuality with you both which you both touch on there is a trend for the most distinctly queer characters to be the villains of the series i.e vamp the first video game canon bisexual even ryan's androgyny also seems to exist specifically to poke buttons with the audience But, as mentioned, even Snake has extremely intimate moments with other men, to the point where they're more captivating than any of his female love interests. It's to the point where it is definitely a theme throughout the game, continuing distinctly into 3 and 4. But do you think there's anything, there's actually something to this? Is Kojima just fascinated with queerness, either comedically or aesthetically? Or is it some kind of statement about masculinity and sexuality you guys think think he's trying to make? If it is a statement, it feels kind of half-baked, but there's definitely enough there to unpack, and I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts from Wiley. I don't know if I'm particularly equipped to answer this question as a person who isn't queer, but it is something I've thought about playing these games. I think maybe Kojima has a bit of a crass fascination with queerness. Um, Do I think Kojima's queer? I don't know. But, like, the Otacon snake ending of MGS1 is like intimate and it's like in my head canon I'm like oh they love each other in a way that like was compelling and interesting but I don't feel equipped to speak on the queerness of the MGS games personally I don't think Kojima's queer maybe maybe he is maybe he could surprise me um I think half-baked is how a lot of ideas in the Metal Gear Solid universe exist um I don't think it's a purely comedic interest I think my guess is that uh, Kojima is very interested, as a lot of military fiction is, with the incredibly strong bonds that can develop between men who are in the military together, which is this kind of, you know, like, the the funny side of this is, like, the volleyball game and Top Gun or whatever, yeah. because it does lend itself to homoeroticism. But I also think that it speaks to, like, a... Our, our society's very narrow definition of love, you know, that it's like, there is no doubt in my mind that Snake and Otacon love each other, and I think the Metal Gear Solid 1 ending is supposed to imply that they love each other, but, like, I I don't think that Kojima conceptualizes that as romantic. I think that he is just, like, 
these two men know each other intimately in a way that has like brought them very close together they're not gonna go like have sex in a you know cabin in the alaskan wilderness uh in his version of the story my version of the story <laughs> maybe they do um but like i i think that he is interested in you know bonds between people connections between men and also i like you know with I, I am sure that it's something he's thought about, and I think probably finds, he'd be like, I think it's objectively interesting that Vamp is a bisexual, because it means that, you know, his genes, some bullshit, you know? And it would be like, I don't, I don't think he's homophobic, but I don't think that he's like, I don't think he's overly sensitive. I think he probably views queerness as like, fascinating more than more than anything yeah he's also really going through it with his his obsession with hunter schaefer right now which is a whole other can of worms perhaps <laughs> i don't know he's man. too young for you to be this obsessed with he's 60 years old i think he's trying his best in the way that 60 year old men sometimes do i also think for all the over explaining he likes to do in his narratives he very often uh, does not put much, put much thought into what he does or what he says. Um, but nonetheless, in my head canon, they did go to that cabin. They did have sex, and it was wonderful and beautiful, and we all loved it. Yep. Okay, last question. This comes from Clover Darling. In Game Champ 3000's YouTube video, the greatest twist in video game history is a lie. She compares Metal Gear Solid 2's themes of misinformation to the game's deceptive marketing that infamously hid Raiden's existence from audiences. They even release fake trailers showing Solid Snake in areas where only Raiden is playable in-game. Do you think that this deliberately deceptive marketing was an intentional metatextual extension of the game's themes or misinformation in the internet age, or was it a no-spoilers precaution like abby being playable in the last of us 2 or was or even was it just a case of audience trolling or some secret fourth thing i will say not for nothing someone did write in and send screenshots of egm's review at the time which just blatantly spoiled that raiden was the playable character which i thought <laughs> pretty interesting um couldn't figure there was no byline which was weird i couldn't figure out who wrote the main review there was like the the additional thoughts bylines but i feel like game magazines used to do that all the time just i know like, ah, we yeah. all wrote it i think mark mcdonald maybe did one of the additional thoughts because they would do like here's four other editors takes on it and maybe john ricciardi but nevertheless um i don't know it's interesting i, I think that I, I think that this metal gear solid 2 cannot be properly understood if you don't understand that it is subverting player expectations sure you know and so to that extent the trailers are a part of the narrative because it cannot set it, like if you know that Ryan's coming Ryan doesn't work you know like you need to be surprised by him and so um i, I mean, we you know knew like he was I, coming and it still worked that? for us we knew he was a, i get what you mean i get what you mean but it's like we we knew that he was a surprise Right. You know, right, like right, if right. if if the game says and halfway through you'll switch to the new protagonist of Metal Gear Solid, then then it would, you know, whatever. Um and so like I don't think that necessarily the idea was like we're going to show how the internet is an unreliable resource by putting fake information in these trailers. But I think it's I think it is uh, like meta textually important uh that you know that they were kind of people were being lied to before the beginning of the game but the abby thing i don't know part of me is like 
You could have just said you played it as her. That still would have been interesting. Yeah, I don't... I mean, because you play as her in, like, the opening moments of the game. Yeah. I really don't know. It's, I mean, it's like, I understand. I, I That story certainly does have things that could be spoiled. But I think the structure of the game is more of yeah. a spoiler than just the fact that you play as Abby. Yeah. I don't know. We want to wrap it up? Yeah. Um. Let's see. There's something that I wanted to mention where... um. On one of the podcasts, I said uh, that it didn't seem like there were any plans to make the big shell the first part of the game. And so Mm. it was strange that they were giving you all the tutorials. Technically incorrect. Uh, In fact, Mm. you can just start playing from big shell. You can like skip the tanker section, which would be a wild way of playing through that game. But like you can do it and you don't need to... You don't need to beat it first, you know? Like, you just yeah. have that option from the beginning. So that's that's interesting. I saw someone uh, kind of calling me out on Twitter about that, which is fine. Just email somethingrottenpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. We're going to get things wrong. Uh, but, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I've been I've been just watching Metal Gear Solid videos. I watched wow. the whole, like, Metal Gear Solid Iceberg video the other day oh, that yeah, was, like, yeah, an yeah. hour and a half long. Uh, I, I love I, – I was thinking about, like, I was like, why do these games feel so – distinct and different in kind of how many like details they include it's like i feel like there are lots of games now that have like easter eggs but i can't think of like really linear games where the easter eggs are like strange mechanical things yeah that you can do right you know usually it's like oh in the corner of this open world there's like a shack and the shack has something surprising in it not like the characters can have a weird interaction if you like use this item next to them yeah or it's like the dishonor games where it's like oh if you go into this building you'll find like an environmental story you know like it's Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways mgs2 feels so much more granular with its easter eggs or like specific maybe is a better word yeah i mean i was looking at uh, metal gear solid 4 is the best for this like that game the the secrets in that game are uh, bananas but there's like there's one part in the forest where you can find this concrete plaque and the plaque has all of the handprints of like the developers who made the game just in it and then if you like lie down on that plaque your like camo will absorb it so you can walk around with just a bunch of handprints on you and there's the whole thing with like ghosts like the developer ghost pictures where if you take pictures in certain parts of the game you will like see images of the developers and it's just it's so cool and i i I don't know i think it's maybe like i think games are so complicated now that even getting them running at all Mm -hmm. is a miracle and so there's less room to like put in a bunch of weird shit like 10 years ago well no uh, I guess it would have been 2016, so it would have been eight years ago. I did this story for Polygon about Easter eggs. It's where I interviewed teams about how they like put them in games and stuff, and like the 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 headline was the costs of developing Easter eggs. And I talked to like the Witcher team and the Dying Light team and uh, the Stanley Parable team guy, mm-hmm. not Davy Reed and the other one. Yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Me. Anyway, point of bringing this up is, man, I, I really screwed the pooch by not trying to get some MGS stuff <laughs> in that story. Uh, also, who knows if the story's any good. Yeah, because it is, you know, it's like you can kind of think of the story is always just like a developer thought this would be cool and they like made it on their own time and they put it in and like, wow, it's there. It's neat. But like when your game is so 
tightly, like, you know, five million systems working together, adding one thing like that feels way more difficult. I'm not a yeah. game developer. I don't know if that's actually the case, but it just, like, you know, if thinking about something like... uh uh, like the last of us 2 or whatever like having a very specific enemy behavior that only happens when you like hit them with a with a weapon that you only get after beating the game yeah that just that just seems like it's not something that's gonna happen right jacob there's an interesting detail in this story by blake hester of polygon fame wow what is it like Techland, a bit of the stanley parables development budget was taken up by easter eggs the fun wasn't free and according to pew william pew that's who i interviewed from the stanley parable that bit took up a lot more than Techland's estimated 2%. He estimates Easter eggs and secrets took up 30% of the Stanley Parable's budget. Well, the Stanley Parable is kind of like, what if he we points... made a game out of Easter eggs, right? <laughs> he points out, though, that there was no set-in-stone budget for the game. Deve during development, neither he or Reading collected checks. There was no kind of money deal. There was no budget for the game. We ended up spending like ten grand overall over the two years on the game. I now think I owe Polygon money for Reading that much of their story on the podcast yeah, but, but you wrote it they probably paid you like four hundred dollars for that story polygon i don't know what it's like now back in the day they had crazy good rates wow okay well the world is worse now yeah, so i don't know what it's like these days you know i haven't written there in many years maybe they're even better uh let's go gotta go <laughs> keep talking about this all right well that's it for our metal gear solid season uh please listen to our bonus episode not just because we reveal what game series we are doing next uh but also because it's really good uh ben hansen and dan reichert uh great fucking time on the pod um Blake, we are going to be doing also a Nebula exclusive on um, The Last of Us 2, like, extra things oh, that yeah. have come out. The remaster, the lost levels, the roguelike mode, and the grounded documentary. Uh, we have a lot of thoughts on that. So mm -hmm. uh, another reason to jump on Nebula, if you're subscribed to Nebula, get the RSS feed, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Um, and now we're going to take, like, a, a month-long break. Basically, at the beginning of or at the end of last year, we said we we're going to do our shows every other week. We changed our minds. Now we're still doing them every week. But between series, we're taking a break. So we have time to basically start recording the next season. Um, so everyone, enjoy this break. Go back and listen to your favorite episodes of Something Rotten. And we'll uh, we'll see you in like the middle of March. Did we change our minds, or did advertisers change our minds? You know, that's the eternal. That's question. right, Blake. We live in a simulation. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.